Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a Hoover Fellow and co-host of the Pacific Century, along with my fellow Hoover Fellow, if I can say it that way, my fellow Hoover Fellow, John Yu, a visiting fellow at Hoover and a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. John, say hello to everyone. Hey, everyone. Just call me Fellow Squared. Fellow Squared. Or maybe we'll just call you Square. Squared. <laughs> squared. People have said squared. that before, too. <laughs> so, uh, John, today we have a truly special guest, and we are honored to be joined by the Secretary of State of the United States, Mike Pompeo. Uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, served as a congressman from Kansas. He was the director of the CIA, became Secretary of State, started off his career graduating at the top of his class at West Point and becoming a uh, an armored infantry officer. Uh, he has uh, worked much of his time over the past four years on dealing with China and what might be called the China challenge, the China threat, uh, but I think has actually been in many ways the China reckoning. So, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific Century. Uh, we'd like to talk primarily about China today with you. And uh, we know this has, of course, been uh, a great focus of yours. A while ago, you said it was the first thing you think about in the morning when you get up and the last thing you think about in the evening. Um, you've, you've had an extraordinarily productive set of policies related to China. But one of the responses that has come out in the, the China-watching community, the Asia community, has been the, the charge that if you treat China as an enemy, you make China an enemy. And I'm wondering if, if you could respond to that to give your view of how China has acted, regardless of what the United States has done, uh, and in ways that um, whether you feel the policy that you implemented has been successful, this policy of reciprocity. Yeah, so the, the, the idea somehow that American actions are driving General Secretary Xi Jinping's model of behavior is simply ludicrous. Um, if anything, uh, what drove it was the appeasement that had taken place for, frankly, decades uh, before, where no matter what uh, action the Chinese Communist Party took, no matter how much it impacted adversely the security and prosperity of the American people, our response was, we can go sell more stuff there, don't upset the apple cart, and we bent a knee. I think that may well have fueled uh, the Chinese Communist Party's vision that says we no longer need to uh, hide our time and, and uh, bide our strength. And so they haven't. They've begun to break promises all across the world uh, and to threaten the capacity for the West, this idea of the rule of law and the idea of sovereignty, these, these central understandings we have about human rights to be violated in ways we've not seen in uh, many, many decades in the world. And so President Trump came in and we uh, we flipped the script. We began to take seriously this challenge, and we both took action ourselves and built out coalitions throughout the world to assist us in preserving the ideas of democracy and human rights and the rule of law and sovereignty. Uh, it is the case that there's still more work to do, but whether it was the idea that said we're going to have reciprocal and fair trade arrangements between our two countries, whether it was the idea that simply said we're not going to permit your companies to invest here in America on terms American companies can't invest in China. You can't steal our intellectual property without us imposing costs. You can't create dens of spies in Houston, Texas, and let it go 
uh, unaccounted for. And so uh, there, there are many things that we have done. We can talk about them more. But the central theory is, is that the preservation of the ideas that we value so much and the security and prosperity of the American people depend on a robust response to the challenges that General Secretary Xi Jinping propose, or, uh, presents to the United States, and we've done our best to counter them. Uh, Mr. Secretary, this is uh, John Yu here. Thanks for joining us, and it's great to hear you. Let me uh, follow up, uh, Misha, from the other side of things, which probably reflects more my uh, bent on things, is did we do enough? Um, were you able to slow China down? Were we able to stop their growth, their drive to you know, domination? Um, what else would you have liked to have done if you'd had more time uh, in office? Yeah, John, look, these are, these are long processes, reversing uh, decades of uh, American policy and convincing another 100-plus nations that uh, they need to be alongside of us in standing up for democracy and freedom isn't going to happen in just four years. And so there really remains an awful lot of work to do. Uh, you know, the places to begin are, are certainly with the commercial space. It's still the case that America is exposed to tremendous risk from important items in the supply chain that Americans depend upon. Uh, coming out of China, we need to take actions that preserves the capacity for us to function, even if China should threaten. Uh, our military needs to continue to expand its capabilities. Uh, there are many, many more missile tests being conducted in China each year than the rest of the world combined. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't surrender uh, on issues that matter an awful lot. I gave the Paris Climate Treaty is a perfect example. Rejoining that treaty would uh, give China an enormous windfall because they have no intention of destroying their economy in pursuit of the objectives of the Paris Climate Treaty. So the, the list of work that remains uh, is significant, uh, and there are a whole handful of things that we have in process that we've begun to work on. But make no mistake, General Secretary Xi Jinping uh, still believes that he has an opportunity to achieve the end state goals that he has laid out. So, Mr. Secretary, it's Misha Oslin again. Um, so after four years of uh, the policies that you've pursued and, as you said, flipped the script, um, have we had our NSC 68 moment, do you think? I mean, meaning going forward now uh, with a, a different team, uh, are we all – on the same page, are, are you confident? Do you do you do you feel comfortable that everyone understands the scale of the threat, understands the scope, and sees in the approach that you began, much like the containment approach back in the 1940s and carried on under different administrations, that reciprocity is the way forward, and and that there there cannot be backsliding in all of the different areas that you've identified. I pray that that's so. Uh, it's important for the American people that it is so. Well, the next administration will have to make their own choices. Uh, two things I think worth commenting on there. First, there is a consensus. Uh, we had support from Democrats on the actions that we took to impose costs on the uh, horrific actions that are taking place in Western China. Some of the worst human rights violations, I, I've called it the stain of the century. It is every bit that. We've had consensus built around the failed promises from the Chinese Communist Party on Hong Kong, and there's consensus around how the United States needs to push back against uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party's uh, pension for retrenching with respect to Taiwan. So there, there are places. But my second point there would be 
there are costs when one does that. There are risks when one does that. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party will respond to the actions that we take. That is, they will employ countermeasures to try and deter us from taking those actions. And we need steadfast leaders who are prepared to accept those costs and uh, acknowledge that uh, the long-term, sustainable freedom and democracy project that has been the United States of America for now uh, more than two centuries depends upon our commitment to preserving our freedom from the challenges that the CCP presents. Mr. Secretary, I know you don't have a lot of time, but I can't let you get away without asking What's next for Mike Pompeo? And I have, uh, as a lawyer, I have one piece of advice. Don't go to Shanghai Disneyland anytime soon. <laughs> but what is, what's next for you? How are you going to, what, what can, I guess in a bigger way, what can uh, all of us who are not in the government anymore, you're a private citizen again, uh, how do you uh, keep this all moving forward now that you've established this? This is the great challenge of our time. So I will, I will heed your recommendation <laughs> with, with respect to uh, tourist attractions in Shanghai. <laughs> uh, beyond that, I, I do hope that I can continue to um, think about and work on the important projects that, that we have begun here, certainly with respect to uh, the challenges presented to the United States. Uh, look, one way we can do it is just to speak the truth to it. Uh, I haven't really spent any time in, in, in this uh, session, but the challenges here inside the United States, on our campuses, in our research institutions, even in our high schools, uh, in commercial space, the, the Chinese Communist Party, as I have said, is inside the gates here. Hmm. Uh, and there is a responsibility of every, every American citizen to be mindful of that, uh, to be aware of it when, uh, when, when you see something that looks like it might well be an effort by the Chinese Communist Party to engage in behavior that's uh, uh, antagonistic to American interests, you ought to check it out. Uh, I wish Congressman Swalwell had done that. Yes. Uh, there, are, there are still many ways that every American citizen can do this. I, I have close friends. We all know the Chinese-American community is a noble, great community. It's, in fact, those very people that our obligation to push back against the Chinese Communist Party um, must continue to support. So I don't know from what perch I'll be doing that, John, but I do hope to continue to find a place because uh, this matters an awful lot to my kids and your kids and all of our grandchildren. So, Mr. Secretary, um, before we let you go, you've, you've mentioned the children, you've mentioned the, the next generation, and, and just now you were also talking about what's going on uh, on the campuses. Clearly, this is a generational long uh, challenge and, and competition. Um, what would be your your thoughts or your hopes or, or advice to the next generation, those in college, those in high school, uh, in terms of understanding the relationship between the People's Republic of China and the United States, in terms of understanding the nature of China itself and the Chinese people, uh, of understanding the Communist Party and, and quite honestly what a Communist Party is. You, you've talked a lot, you've dealt with the Confucius Institutes, you've thought a lot about this. What is it that you would like to see them do or understand or, or even ask so that they're prepared for this generational challenge? Look, I, I think every individual has a responsibility, especially those of us who have had the opportunity to lead. And I don't just mean in government. I mean uh, company CEOs, uh, heads of school boards, those running uh, pension funds uh, in California and around the country. We all have to be eyes wide open. And so that requires learning, taking on board uh, information, seeing these things for what they are, not 
not shying away from it either because it's hard to push back against, which it is, right? Um, I, I've seen this time and time again, uh, or because it's particularly lucrative, lucrative not to push back. Uh, and I, I'm convinced uh, this next generation will get it. You know, uh, I, I began my service in the United States military uh, during uh, the Cold War. I served from 1986 to 1989 as an armor officer on the then East German border. Um, I had an appreciation for what tyranny and authoritarianism do to the uh, individual spirit and the flourishing of human life. I, I'm confident the next generation will come to understand that as well. They will come to see that it is today's Chinese Communist Party that really presents the greatest threat to those freedoms that, that each and every one of them gets to benefit from because they have the uh, the good fortune to be American. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you. You you mentioned calling it as it is, seeing things for what they are. In Chinese, there's a long-standing uh, philosophical tradition called rectification of names, which essentially means call things as they really are. Don't don't self delude. And I think that's probably the best piece of advice we can uh, take from you uh, after 40 years of a different approach and and the four years that you strove to uh, rectify names and, quite frankly, put us on a new path. So we we thank you for your, your service. We thank you for uh, what you did uh, during this period. And we thank you for joining us today on the Pacific Century. Misha, John, it was great to be with you all. Good luck. So long. Thank you. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for joining us. It was a Great conversation, very insightful looking back on the Trump years, but also looking forward, Misha. Um, but there's a lot of other things going on in the world, in Asia. Uh, Misha, what's next up on the agenda? Well, John, first of all, it's it's not like Asia's stopping because, A, of a, of a presidential transition or because of everything that's going on here. Uh, and in fact, uh, we saw one of the most egregious assaults on what remains of democracy in Hong Kong. And you can't actually say that much remains anyway. But uh, last week, uh, when the um, Chinese authorities, because uh, it's really hard to just call them Hong Kong authorities in any way now, but Chinese authorities rounded up and arrested 53 of the democracy freedom movement leaders uh, including, of course, Joshua Wong again, Jimmy Lai, uh, and others, and has been charging people. And by the way, they arrested an American who uh, is is over there working uh, on these issues, and have and have begun charging them with the the Sedition Act, so to speak, of the national security law. Meaning, this there are there are various levels uh, within the law, the national security laws that were passed. Uh, earlier last year or last year. Um, and only the, the most egregious uh, actions were supposed to be charged under uh, the, you know, the most serious elements of the law, which include the uh, provisions that people could be brought back to China for trial. Uh, this is what we're beginning to see. So all of the comments that people had that in a wait and see how the law sort of plays out that um, there's there's still, you know, a, a ways to go before Hong Kong 
is fully subordinate. All that's essentially over. Um, we're seeing scenes, John, that are reminiscent of people fleeing, you know, Berlin right before they put up the Berlin Wall. Right? You had a whole group trying to flee to Taiwan on a high-speed motorboat that that were captured and brought back to Hong Kong. I, I think we're getting close, actually, to an Iron Curtain or what you know people trying to be cute used to call the Bamboo Curtain moment. Um, China is is essentially that the mainland is going to cut Hong Kong off from the rest of the world. Um, they are going to build the equivalent of a Berlin Wall. Uh, and this is going to be, a, by the way, a massive economic shock. I think you're going to see ultimately uh, businesses flee Hong Kong. You can no longer be safe there or sure that there's any type of rule of law. Uh, I think I, to be quite frank, I think that that places like Singapore should be taking advantage of this and probably will be taking advantage of this. I think Tokyo should be taking advantage of this. Uh, but I think the days of Hong Kong, um, even remotely resembling what it's been uh, since uh, 1997 or, of course, before that, are rapidly coming to an end. This happened last week while all the stuff about a transition and so on and so forth is going on. Beijing is is taking every opportunity it can to press forward uh, with its with its takeover. As it's, uh, I think uh, maybe it was President Reagan who said this. I can't remember who, but they said uh, they once said that well, uh, democracies sometimes they may build walls to keep people out, but uh, you know authoritarians and dictators they build walls to keep people in. And that tells you a lot about uh, China and its relationship to its people is that they're going to try to stop their people from leaving the country, right? America, other Western democracies are confident to let their citizens decide where they want to live. If they don't like it here, they can go somewhere else, right? They can, but what, what does it say about a regime that's so frightened of its own people and its, their opinions that they want to keep them in? Uh, well, it makes you wonder, is Hong Kong going to be the next Xinjiang, right? Is it going to be the next, you know, state-run uh, surveillance prison of a whole population? Uh, the Chinese have already tried it on a huge population. Uh, I, I worry that Hong Kong will be next. Well, it's it's uh, look, they, they will treat Hong Kong uh, differently in the sense that there's not the religious and uh, ethnic uh, animus that is there. Um, but in the sense of creating a techno totalitarian state, um, it's, it's clearly, it's clearly going to happen. I mean, I just, you know, I just don't think John, we've, we've, the world has really, it's been, it's been so much, right. I mean, it's been a year of COVID we've had all the election issues. Um, I just don't think people have fully grasped the, the immensity, the enormity of the tragedy of what's happened, uh, in Hong Kong and how, uh, conversely, then, how important Taiwan has become. Um, and it's also very disheartening. I mean, you get a lot of, you know, pundits here saying, well, you know, the the, the people of, of China will be, you know, they don't support the Communist Party, and they're, they're not going to, um, you know, they're going to be just as worried about a crackdown in Hong Kong, because they see it as, you know, threatening to themselves. And the truth is, people on the mainland didn't care at all about Hong Kong. Uh, and what happened uh, in Hong Kong. And they certainly don't seem to care about Xinjiang and what's happening in Xinjiang. Um, it, you know, the, the, the party under Xi Jinping has been so successful in controlling um, information and dissemination of information that you have to be very careful in making any 
assessments. Uh, but at the same time, it also seems like there is a lot of support right now uh, for Xi Jinping. I mean, let, let's be honest, you know. Um, Within China, but not yeah, outside inside of China. China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the people China. of China. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, 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 whether it's half staged or wholly staged, you know, the, the, the New Year celebrations in Wuhan, the fact that China looks to be, yeah, they closed down two major cities. I think it was like 11 million people this week because of COVID, but but compared to to the the sort of chaos that's going on here, um, you know they they feel they really do feel that their system is being proved better. And again, we I really think we have to make a distinction um, between a younger generation that is much more nationalistic and has grown up only knowing a fairly strong or extremely strong China versus a much older generation, a generation that knew a weak China and knew an America that was much stronger or an America that um, had been triumphant in the Cold War. These are not the Chinese we're dealing with today. And so, you know, the, the, the assertions that, um, uh, you know, we just have to wait for the Chinese people to rise up uh, and find the Democrats in China again. I, I think that that misreads a lot of it, and 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 in fact, that makes again, uh, you know, not it not it's it, there are many things to talk about regarding this, but it makes Taiwan even more important. Um, not because you, you're saying, well, we're going to you know pick Taiwan over China, and somehow Taiwan's going to to d- displace China in the world. That's never going to happen. But certainly, as a Chinese ethnic democracy as a cynic democracy, uh, S-I-N-I-C democracy, it is even more uh, important and plays a more important role. And as a democracy period in Asia and the Indo-Pacific, it plays a more important role because democracy is under extraordinary stress now as we don't have to, um, we don't have to really get into. Uh, and so successful democracies like Taiwan become even more important. And, and from Beijing's perspective, I think, the geopolitical perspective, having successfully swallowed Taiwan, uh, having successfully swallowed Hong Kong with absolutely no repercussions or costs whatsoever, having maintained its control over uh, Xinjiang and Tibet, having basically, you know, fought, if we want to call it that, fought India to a draw, a standstill up in the Himalayas. It's it's extremely confident. And I think you are going to see now, both because of what's happening in general in America, but also because of uh, the Biden administration, which you know, is is uh, the players or people that Beijing is familiar with from the Obama years. I think you're going to see a full court press over the next four years on Taiwan. Uh, and it is it is an extremely dangerous moment. Well, there's a much, uh, you know, Hong Kong, you know, of course, we wish this hadn't happened, but it does send a valuable signal why no other country should want to be an ally of China. Uh, they break their agreements. They can't be trusted. Uh, you can see what's going to happen to you if you uh, get so close to China, they want to absorb you. Uh, so there's that. Then the second thing I, I uh, just point out is that Taiwan and Hong Kong are different in that uh, Hong Kong is just indefensible, or you can't defend Hong Kong from China. I mean, it's it's contiguous to China. It sits in the middle, right, right there, right next to it. Taiwan is a totally different question. Uh, China, uh, mainland China, the Chinese Communist Party is not going to find it so easy to uh, just absorb uh, Taiwan. I, I would expect Taiwan would put up a fight. Um, they have a, 
a good military and we should we have been and hopefully the next administration will do more to help it upgrade its defenses um, also taiwan is independent and wealthy and hopefully we, we didn't get the chance to talk uh, more with secretary pompeo about it but hopefully taiwan can become part of a defensive alliance in the region including uh, you know japan india australia us uh, Korea, Philippines, you know, right? Uh, what the, the Hong Kong, it, what Taiwan, what China has done to Hong Kong is, I hope, is only going to impel people to ally with the United States much faster to contain China. Well, it's it's interesting as well that the in the final days, the Trump administration is pushing. Uh, forward hard on Taiwan. In fact, Secretary Pompeo made um, some really harsh statements overall about, uh, you know, about China's claims in the world, but in particular about about Taiwan. And, and, and the bottom line was, look, we're just not going to play by their game a- anymore. And in fact, uh, the UN ambassador, Kelly Kraft, will be visiting Taiwan. Uh, I think it's this week, because um, next week is the, the turnover. And she will be, you know, uh, Probably the most prominent official to visit, though we did have uh, the cabinet official, the the um, it was a health uh, secretary, uh, Azar, go and and visit. Um, but you know, to send the UN official, so to send the, the, one of your highest diplomatic officials to Taiwan, is really a statement. Obviously, the Chinese are very unhappy about this, but um, this is something that um, they are they are continuing to press the Chinese. And let's let's be frank, they're also setting a bar for the Biden administration, saying, look. You know, we've we're sending all these people out. We've done this. Uh, are you going to are you going to keep it up? And I think that's really the question. Uh, you heard Secretary Pompeo earlier say he he prays that we're sort of all on the same page uh, vis-a-vis China. And so the question is, are we also all on the same page uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan? This is going to be the Biden administration. Biden administration is going to have a lot of foreign policy problems. Um, they're going to have problems with Iran. They're going to have problems with Russia. Uh, again, problems with North Korea, which poked its head up uh, from the molehill uh, this week. Uh, but really, China is going to be, you know, going to be significant. And you can envision um, it'll be very interesting to see how Beijing plays it. But you can envision that they will put a lot of pressure, uh, but very in a sophisticated way, blandishments to the Biden administration to ease off. Uh, the Trump era policies, whether it's the tariffs, uh, whether it's Huawei and and uh, access to uh, 5G uh, networks in the United States, whether it's not prosecuting, um, you know, the intelligence um, uh, breaches as much, you know, they're just, uh, you know, not going to be going after people as strongly in the way that they have uh, anything, you know, sanctions against Chinese banks or individuals or things like that. I mean, there was really a lot that the Trump administration did, even if it wasn't always um, consistent. Uh, but I think we have to watch very carefully in the first months how Beijing approaches the Biden administration, uh, what carrots they offer. And then, quite frankly, what sticks they offer, and do they do they feel so confident that they push harder, or if the Biden people hold the line, uh, will will Beijing get frustrated? Um, you know, how, how will they interpret that? Let's just just for a second, let's say they hold the line. You know, do they then interpret it as, yeah, this has been uh, an NSC sixty eight moment, as we asked. Secretary Pompeo, is this now that all Americans are on the same page vis a vis China? And you certainly have been hearing hard rhetoric from the uh, the Biden team. I think Biden himself 
last week or or at least recently talked about you know a coalition of democracies which is something that had been brooded around washington for quite some time um an alliance of democracies to to deal with china do they really mean it will they do anything with it if they do number 1 who will come with them you know on board with them number 2 what will they actually do and then number 3 how does china interpret this that it's just easy to pick you know pick off the weak links or that they really face something more substantial and then conversely of course if the biden administration believes from a psychological perspective that they want to show some good faith they want to show goodwill and so therefore they're going to ease up on let's say the tariffs or ease up on huawei or something like that um how does Beijing interpret that? And do they then say, ah, we've got these guys? Yeah, this, I was, yeah, I've been wondering what uh, the Biden administration would do. So what worries me is not that they would reject uh, the Trump administration's reorientation of China policy, but that they would just be passive. You know, that this, uh, this is an administration that has a lot of uh, Clinton retreads or Obama retreads. And that they would just, um, you know, f- be driven by events that they they may talk a good game. And I think this was, uh, to me, very much the story of the Obama years. Talked a great game, good at the rhetoric, but when it came to actually developing a strategy that you could actually put into place and that would actually result uh, in diplomacy, economic sanctions, use of force to advance American interests, they had no stomach for it. And I wonder whether that's yeah, – if I were to guess, that's what would worry me about the Biden administration. They'll put out great white papers. They'll you know, have great-sounding strategies. They'll work the press like there's no tomorrow. But when it comes to actually using the levers of you know, economic, diplomatic, and military power, they just sit by passively, as it seems to me in Asia, Obama did for eight years. That's what worries me. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's right, and it's it's easy, and it's easy for Republicans as well as Democrats to convince themselves that by that they don't want to make things worse, right? That by not trying to get to a head-to-head challenge, that you will keep things more stable, and therefore, if they remain stable, then you have a chance of resolving them. But the the I think the data would lead you to conclude that under the Obama years, um, that only uh, abetted China's plans, policies, and, and, and goals, right? That, uh, that not acting, yeah, maybe we didn't go to war over the South China Sea, uh, but it effectively ceded the South China Sea to, uh, to China in, in many ways. I mean, the Navy still goes through it. And in fact, Trump made a point of having essentially monthly freedom of navigation operations. There's nothing to keep your eye on. I mean, it'd be, it'd be good for some enterprising young analyst out there, right, to, to make a chart of the things that the Trump administration has done and then see how the Biden administration does, right? Do they keep up the monthly freedom of navigation operations and, uh, and the like, what, you know, do they suddenly say, Oh, you know, the Confucius institutes are okay. We're not as worried about the Confucius institutes. All of that I think would be a very bad sign. Um, John, I want to bring something else up to you if I can, can I bring something else up? Yeah. About I was going to add one thing because yeah. we're no, to close the show out with, which is, oh. you know, we can't, uh, you know, we can't, uh, let go without passing the disorder that's going on in the United States. Uh, well, before we get had, to that, actually, oh, can I bring up one other thing, oh, of sure. China thing, and then you can then you can bring us over to that. Uh, I guess um, I just there was a report uh, in the um, the Washington Examiner uh, this week um, 
earlier this week that was really interesting. I don't know if you saw it, but it, it talked about a 14-page report. Uh, this this news story talked about a 14-page report uh, for the Senate Intelligence Committee from, uh, they, they described the author as an analytic ombudsman and longtime intelligence official. Now, I assume it's someone, you know, considered a subject expert who was uh, retained by the um, uh, by the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, but basically to look at um, the the question of um, the U.S. intelligence community's assessments on foreign influence in the 2020 campaign, the election, so the one we just went through. And the conclusion was that in the intelligence community, the Russia analysts uh, were were correct in, in basically acknowledging Russian interference, but that the China analysts did not uh, accurately assess the intelligence that they were getting, uh, reluctant uh, to have their analysis on China brought forward, i.e. that China interfered in the election, because they tended to disagree with the administration's policies. So that the the report, and granted it would have been, you know, a Republican majority in the Senate Intelligence Committee, I'm assuming commissioning the report. Nonetheless, the report concluding that it was the China analysts who directly politicized their intelligence by downplaying the role of China. Now, I, I don't, I haven't, the report's not been released. Um, I haven't talked to anyone about it yet. Um, but uh, this was apparently something that the DNI, uh, John Ratcliffe, uh, agreed with um, and has uh, in fact, chimed in with some of his prior comments about his concern that uh, the intelligence community has not been as uh, aggressive, so to speak, in making accurate assessments about China. And and this it, it's really a concern. I, I think I, I don't. We don't know if it, if it's true or not. And of course, I'm sure the analysts and the and the IC would say it's absolutely not true. But the point is, we're we're you know we're things have changed so much over four years that if we're not getting the most accurate intelligence, first of all, gathering the most accurate intelligence and then assessing it, analyzing it, interpreting it in the in the best ways for the policymakers, we have a real problem going forward. And it was just, I found it very interesting that after all the complaints for how many decades about, you know, the CIA underestimating the Russians that, you know, this report concluded that the Russia analysts got it right and the China analysts did not. And it'll be very interesting to see how um, Bill Burns, who's just been named by Obama, I'm sorry, by Biden as his CIA director, uh, will deal with the question of um, accurate assessments on the part of the intelligence community. I mean, he's not the DNI, he's the DCI, but the CIA is most important in that, uh, on China. Well, I can... Um... I don't know much more than what you've reported, but I, I just want to flag that you might say that uh, after Pearl Harbor, uh, the fall of China might have been the greatest, second greatest intelligence failure in American history, uh, and that we've long had problems with the intelligence evaluations of China. Uh, and there was, there's long been this worry going back to the fall of China, right, in 1949, uh, which our you know our analysts uh, only started to see at the very very end. There's always been this long uh, worry and accusations, of course, that uh, the old China hands love the country so much, uh, and it is a wonderful culture with a wonderful history. But they fall so much in love with the country and its culture that they tend to shade things towards uh, you know an pro-China way, and uh, you know that's 
something uh, our intelligence analysts who study China have been uh, accused of for many, many decades, right? Going back to, for, and there's, in fact, there are wonderful books about how Americans often uh, project all their hopes onto China, going back to when the first Christian missionaries started visiting uh, China, but that we always have, uh, and, and, and still to today, and maybe it's reflected in this report, it's not sinister, it's just that Americans tend to see in China what they want to see. And you said, Misha, you know, before, as you said to Secretary Pompeo, before uh, Trump, a lot of Americans wanted to see a country that hopefully would make the transition to democracy the way Korea, Taiwan, uh, uh, you know, had, you know, the Asian tigers had, Japan had, Germany had, but, uh, you know, China is going to, you know, pursue its own course. And, and I think I worry our intelligence analysts may miss it, just like China intelligence analysts have missed lots of things about China going back, you know, to uh, the 1940s. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 easy to sit outside and 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 talk about it from one perspective or another, and uh, I'm sure it's given how much information is out there that needs to be gathered and and analyzed. Um, you know, it's hard. I don't want to cast aspersions. And, and I think, you know, there's sort of a, you know, policy is one thing you're trying to make a choice on what you think the right path forward is, you know, there's, you know, in the most idealistic sense, you know, there is a purity to the intelligence process, right, of, of gathering information and assessing it and then presenting it to the policymakers. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, we, we've heard about politicization of intelligence on both Republican and Democratic sides. There's no question about it uh, under both administrations and at different levels. You know, you put the layer of ODNI, the director of national intelligence, on top of the CIA and the other 15 intelligence agencies, and and uh, each of which often has their own views from State Department, INR, to the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, to the Geospatial Agency and the like. Um, but I, I guess the point I wanted to make in that reading this report, which was really about the election, that it just raises this much larger question of we're, we're in the foothills of a new era dealing with China, and the intelligence is just crucial at this point, right? It, we're not in the the days of thinking that this is this relationship is going to be you know a strategic partnership and we're all going to work together and China's going to moderate towards us. I mean, we've just been talking about Hong Kong. You know, did did they foresee what was going to happen in Hong Kong? You know, we, what are they seeing about Taiwan? The intelligence now, to me, is even more crucial than than before, in, in a sense, because we've got to get the policy right because we're in a new policy era, regardless of what the Biden administration thinks they want to do. They're in they're in a new era. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting and wanted to bring it up to you. Well, I just want to make sure we don't. Uh leave before just taking note of what's happened in Washington this last week, uh, the uh, assault on the Capitol, uh, the insanity of trying to stop the electoral college count, and just the small way it intersects with our own podcast is that this has uh, dropped a propaganda coup in the hands of the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese uh, press have been out in force uh, criticizing the United States, suggesting we don't really have the moral standing to judge other people's countries uh, anymore. Uh, the Chinese state media compared what happened this week to protests in Hong Kong. And 
called it a <laughs> beautiful sight to behold because that was the language Nancy Pelosi used to describe the Hong Kong protests. Uh, they called the riots of violence as violence and a disgrace and uh, basically have uh, taken the opportunity to claim perhaps that we don't really run a real democracy over here or that we're in the same position here as the Chinese Communist Party is over in Hong Kong. And they were both fighting uh, morally equivalent uh, protesters and disruptors. That's uh, just another, uh, just in our own area, this podcast, uh, uh, an unfortunate, sad consequence of what happened uh, this week, I just like to add, I think I hope most people in the world realize that the parallels are ridiculous. You know, that here we have the world's, I guess, second oldest operating democracy after uh, Great Britain, uh, where we, and probably we're the country with the longest tradition of peaceful transfers of power. Um, and uh, we did have this disorder, but to me, it was a sign of how resilient our system is that you had this riot, this assault on the Capitol, but the constitutional rules still prevailed. The machinery went forward. Biden was st still received the electoral votes that he was due. The Senate uh, and the House counted them properly. And uh, that uh, it's not that protests like that and even attacks on the Capitol uh, may look disturbing on television, but they actually cannot stop our constitutional rules from moving forward. And that's a big difference in China, where the Constitution doesn't matter what the Constitution says. All power is exercised by the Chinese Communist Party behind the Constitution, regardless of the Constitution. So I just hope people who uh, around the world realize that regardless of the propaganda coup that the Chinese Communist Party thinks it has, it's obvious to everyone just with their own eyes the real differences between the two systems. I think that was well said, and nothing I can add. I agree. So, wow, that's a first time ever. I we got to end the show now. <laughs> we do, but well, it's because you're a constitutional law scholar talking about constitution. What could I, a knuckle-dragging historian of the, of the Indo-Pacific, possibly add to that? Nothing. So I will simply say uh, that uh, we will be back. There's going to be a lot to talk about going forward uh, with the Biden administration, which takes office next week. Uh, as usual, we'll, we'll try to reach out to them and, and see if we can get folks from their side to come on the show uh, to talk to us about what they're doing. Uh, we'll try to get uh, other voices that can interpret what uh, a democratic policy after four years uh, of real change towards China will be like. So don't go away. We'll be back here. Uh, John, thank you. Uh, thanks to Secretary Pompeo for taking some time to visit with us today. And so on behalf of John Yu and the Hoover Institution, this is Misha Oslin for the Pacific Century saying bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.